One of the things that our minds turn to at the beginning of a new year is this question of what will the year hold for me? So I want to take that question and reframe it a little bit. So instead of what will this year hold for me is what will I hold on to this year? What will I hold on to this year? Now, uh, this is also a time where we also hear lots of cliche statements about, you know, just good little ditties that we can take through the year. I think of lots of uh, uh, statements that I heard at work when I, when I was working uh, in a, in a uh, place down in Virginia Beach called LifeNet. But one of, the, one of the things that we always heard was teamwork makes the dream work. That was uh, one of my favorite ones. Attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. We heard that a lot. Uh, the one that I gave to our team was, don't be part of the problem, be the whole problem. <laughs> nah, they, uh, I was joking when I said that. So instead of giving you a bunch of cliches, which we could do, and you could walk out of here and say, oh, well, write that down in my Bible and just have a cliche. I want us to focus on something tangible. And you think, well, how is grace tangible for 2023? How is, how is grace for 2023, what does that look like? So I want to define grace this morning. I want to define grace by four characteristics that we're going to see from the scripture. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 for the first one. This first definition of grace <clears throat> is found in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, so I'm going to read it here for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Grace, grace is defined as a gift. Grace is a gift. Specifically, it's the gift of salvation. The greatest truth that you can learn and hold on to is that salvation is by grace alone. It's a gift. Look specifically in the middle of verse 8. It's not of your own doing. Paul squarely combats our transactional nature. And what I mean by our transactional nature is this. When we think of receiving something, we usually think of doing something to receive it. So if I work X amount of hours, I get paid X amount of money. If I clean the dishes, I get appreciation. (laughs) If I do something, I will receive something. That's our transactional nature. But I guess sometimes we call this sowing and reaping or receiving our just rewards. Whatever the term, we believe that nothing is free. That's how we operate. Nothing is truly free. You have to earn everything. But Ephesians 2.8 tells us that salvation is not earned. In fact, it cannot be earned. It must be given. And if it's given without being earned, then it's grace. Grace is a gift. God's goodness to those who deserve only his wrath. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice Romans 6.23, though, the only thing that sinners can earn, the only thing that sinners can earn in Romans 6.23 is death. So what does it take to earn eternal life? Trick question. (laughs) You can't earn eternal life. 
It is a gift. You may have heard of this acronym based on grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Whose expense? Who did the work? Christ did. Now, the fact that salvation is a gift, that grace is a gift, has two applications for us. So, first application, grace is a gift. Application number one, it's not about us. It's not about us. If we earned it, if we worked for it, if we, if we were owed it, then of course we could take pride or we could feel superior. But the first step to receive the gift of salvation is to admit that we don't deserve it because we're sinners. We must admit we earn only death because of our sin. Eternal life, we need it. We seek it, we cry out for it, but we don't deserve it. And so God acted. Look earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 4 through 6. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God is the one who gives salvation as a gift. So for those of you who have not received salvation, you've not received the gift of grace. Will this be the year that you stop trying to earn salvation and you experience God's saving grace? There's a second application that grace is a gift. There's a second application. First one, it's not about us. Guess what the second one is? It's all about God. <laughs> it's about God receiving glory and praise. So we read four, four through six. Let's look at the next verse, Ephesians 2, 7. The result of grace is this. So that for this purpose, he showed grace. That in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's the end result of God's grace? God's own glory. Then what must be the beginning point of God's grace? God's own glory. Not my performance. Our performance is what began Ephesians chapter 2. So look at verses 1 through 3. Let's see what our performance was like. Verses 1 through 3 tell us that we're dead. We follow the course of the world. We follow the prince and power of the air. We're sons of disobedience. We're living in the passions of our own flesh. We're carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We're children of wrath. Did you catch the part where we weren't actually that bad off and we just needed a little nudge over the top and Christ came along and nudged us up? You didn't miss it because it's not there. Our performance got us nothing but death. And so grace is not about our performance. It's about God. He gets the glory and praise because grace is given to those who don't deserve it. Many of us have received God's saving grace. And so the question is, will you live this year for God's glory 
and not our own. But this may cause you to think, hearing that God has done all of this, that we couldn't do anything, and that grace is amplified by the fact that we were such great sinners. You may think that grace is enhanced by this extreme disparity between God and the sinner. And maybe, then, grace will be more amplified if I sin more. So let's turn to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, because this is the second thing that we find out about grace. Grace is an instructor. Grace is an instructor. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you're a believer, if you've received the grace of if you receive grace as a gift for salvation, then you should realize that you're in possession of grace as an instructor for sanctification. Look at Titus 2.12. What's the first word? The first word is training. Maybe you have a dog or an animal at home and you've taught it to, you've trained it to sit or lie down or roll over. Our family doesn't have animals. We just have five children. So, one of the things that Davina and I did a long time ago is we came up with some training for our kids. And rule number one at dinner was implemented years and years ago. In fact, we, it just came up last night. Rule number one is train yourself to eat things you don't like. That's rule number one. Why would Davina and I implement such a mean-spirited rule? I mean, why not just let our kids eat whatever they want? Well, we saw something coming that they did not. Outrageously picky eating habits. <laughs> and we decided that as parents, we wanted to work against, we wanted to mitigate that outcome. There's a whole bunch of food that they were missing, like mushrooms and jalapenos and Brussels sprouts and liver and sushi and all kinds of other things that they could enjoy if they would train their taste buds. Now, guess who was not asking for that rule? None of the kids. Not a single one of them at nine months old, having tasted the pureed banana and apple medley that they were eating, smacked their little lips, put down their spoon, looked at Davina and said, Mother, this is delicious, but I desire to grow my palate so tomorrow, kindly serve the pea, carrot, eggplant medley that I detested last week. None of them asked for this. They didn't want to trade in their taste buds to eat other things. They wanted what they wanted and only what they wanted when they wanted it. Who does that sound like? It sounds like sinners. It sounds like us, every man, woman, and child in here. Ultimately, what is sin? We want, we want what we want when we want it. But we sinners have received grace. 
we receive grace for salvation, and then, sinfully, we assume that means we have the green light to Christianize all of our desires. Deciding that God saved us to be happy, so we now have license to do whatever we want to. Look back at Titus 2.11. The same grace that brought salvation, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That same grace begins to train us to bring discipline to our undisciplined lives. And this training has both a negative and a positive application. Negatively, the training is to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I don't mean negatively as bad. I mean negatively as subtracting something. What does that mean? It means that grace is training us to say no to sin. To have what we want and only what we want. Grace is training us to mortify the flesh. That's a fancy phrase. It just means that grace is training us to kill sin. To say no to sin. All right, so if we're supposed to say no to sin, what can we say yes to? What do we get to say yes to positively then? The application is grace is training us, the next phrase, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, if we put off sin, then we have to put on something, and we put on godliness. Paul uses that same tactic back in Ephesians when he's describing the, the process as putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Grace trains us to look more and more like God. Grace trains us to be holy, and the process of being made holy is called sanctification. We saw this process in Titus 2.12, but look down two verses to Titus 2.14, and you'll see the same two-sided process again. Christ redeems us from all lawlessness. It means he saves us from sin and sinning. And saving us from sin and sinning means we say no to it. And then, positively, he purifies for himself a people for his own possession. It means to make us clean, to train us to be holy. Well, remember what we talked about before, though. It's not about us. It's all about God. So, who is the one who is redeeming and purifying? God is. God redeems. God purifies. And so we received salvation by grace of God, by the grace of God, and now we are sanctified by the grace of God. So grace is a gift for salvation. Grace is an instructor for sanctification. We have a third definition that we want to look at this morning. Grace is a ministry. Grace is a ministry. So we highlighted a couple of passages, Ephesians and Titus. In both of those passages, we can see the purpose of, of grace as ministry or service or good works. If you're still in Titus chapter 2, look at verse 14, one we just read. You'll see the purpose of God's sanctification to purify for himself a people who are zealous for what? For good works. Remember back to Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9, the next verse, verse 10, the result of God's grace for salvation. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But there's one other passage I want us to look at where we'll camp for this 
part of the, the message. Look, look at 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As believers, individually, we have received grace for service. Look at verse 10 again. We received a gift, something we did not deserve or earn, and we're to use that gift to benefit one another. Specifically, Peter is speaking to the church here, so that gift is to be used in connection with the church, with your fellow body of believers. But then Peter says our use of our gift should be like a steward, each individual as one who does not own but manages a gift. But notice, Peter doesn't call it a gift anymore. He calls it God's very grace. What we have received as a gift is God's very grace. So why should you and I be serving? Because we've received grace from God. God saved us. And then God prepared beforehand the, works, the good works that we should walk in. God shed his grace on us for salvation, and the, one of the outcomes is that he has good works already prepared for us to do. Now, just stop for a second and think how awesome this is. The next time you're able to physically help out a brother or sister in Christ, that was prepared beforehand, before you were even born, for the express purpose that you should step into that space Flip it around for a moment. You're without a car or a van. You need help. You've lo you're lost and confused without a loved one who's passed away. You're wondering if there is a God and if he really cares. And what happens? Well, from your perspective, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, shows up at just the right moment with just the right help. And you're amazed and you rejoice. But what if? What if that brother or sister had decided that the grace they received, the grace that God lavished on them was for himself only or for herself only? Let's go a step further because we often associate God's grace to us with only material things. We need new tires on the car. Someone gives us new tires. But God's grace is not just material God has given each of us different life experiences to walk through. We're to use those to minister to others. I'm talking about the opportunity to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. God has given you blessings and trials. He's done it not for your benefit only. He's placed you and me in a body of believers in which different members are thriving or suffering and he's done so because together we should be building each other up to good works. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another 
Stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, we often focus on verse 25, that we should make it a regular habit to meet together. But the question is, why? Why should we make it a regular habit? Well, verse 24 says we're to make it a regular habit because we're supposed to be stirring one another up to love and good works. So do we just come together for a jolt of happiness to get us through the week? Plaster on a smile and fake it till you make it. No. What happens in verse 24 flows out of verse 23, which is that we individually and corporately, we hold fast the confession of our hope. What is the hope? The hope is that grace is true, that salvation is real, that sanctification is slowly making us more holy, and our hope is based on the character and the word of God, that he who promised is faithful. So when we gather, or as we're in this body together, Are you sharing grace with others based on the grace that God has given you? Are you serving one another tangibly and intangibly based on God's grace to you? Or are we hoarding the grace for ourselves alone? Now, you may be thinking, you have no idea. You don't know me the mess that I've made of my life this past week or the past month or all of 2022. You have no idea. God's grace pulled me out, and I mean just barely. I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough to serve others. Let me remind you, you are judging based on your own judgment, your own standard. You're comparing yourself with others. The truth is we all made a mess of our lives through sin. Whether we judge the sin great or small, doesn't matter because it's not about you. It's all about God and his grace. We all fall short. We all fall short in unique ways. And God delights in saving us each uniquely. And having done so, he uses our unique experience to benefit those around us. Your good works, your good works that are prepared beforehand for you to walk in are not my good works. And my good works are not your good works. God has uniquely positioned you for where you're at. One of the things that always amazes me is I think of, again, because the context coming out of LifeNet, uh, there was lots of security at our building. You couldn't enter and exit that building without having a key card. I mean, literally, there was no punch code. There was a, there was a door that had a key card. If you didn't have it, you had to ring and ask for the secretary, who was a very nice lady, to let you in. You couldn't just walk in and out. How does God get the gospel into a place like that? He puts Christians there. He puts you there. God has put you individually, uniquely into your family, into your class at school teens, into your college setting. 
into your place of business. He's put you uniquely there to live as a Christian who's received grace, to serve those around you. So our application is this. God has prepared you by his grace to walk in good works. His grace should lead you then to minister to others. These three definitions, these first three definitions of grace lead us to the ultimate definition of grace for 2023. Grace, <clears throat> grace is a person. Grace is a person. We could have started here, but here's where we'll end. Because grace is not simply an abstract theory. It's not just something out there, ethereal, <clears throat> that's just a concept to be studied. Grace is a person. It's Jesus Christ. So we, right before the, uh, Josh read John 1, and we'll start back at John 1, 14, verses, verse uh, 15, 16, and 17. So John 1, 14 through 17. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So if you ever wonder what grace looks like, it looks like the Son. Grace is a person. It is the Son. Four times in the passage we just read, grace is mentioned. The word, the son, that is Jesus, is said to be full of grace and truth in verse 14. And again, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ in verse 18. And we have received grace upon grace from his fullness. Let me highlight that phrase for just a moment, grace upon grace. Because it's tempting to think that this is a compounding effect in our lives of grace and then more grace, like somehow we can have a super abundance of grace as compared to other people. The best way I can help you interpret this unique expression, grace upon grace, is to give you an alternate translation, which is grace in exchange for grace. Why do I say that? There's two examples. <clears throat> what are the two examples of grace here? Grace in exchange for grace. What are the two graces that are being exchanged? This verse, this phrase, verse 16, is related to the phrase in verse 17. The beginning of the phrase in verse, verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses. The Mosaic law, the Mosaic law was a demonstration of grace from God. And as New Testament believers, we don't often think of the law of Moses as grace. We think of a lot of do's and don'ts. We think of a lot of bloodshed. We think of a lot of strange rules that they had. But we don't think that it was grace from God. But here's a question. How else was a Jew to know what is right and wrong? or who God is and how to please him, or how to get back in right relationship with him. God graciously told them in the law. What we have in verse 16 is not only the affirmation that the law of Moses was grace, but that grace did not end there, that there is a grace that supersedes the law. Where is this amazing grace located? Well, verse 16 just told us, from his fullness, 
we have all received. From whose fullness? From the fullness of Jesus Christ. The grace found in Jesus Christ superseded the grace found in the law of Moses. In fact, Jesus Christ is the very incarnation of grace. The only son from the father is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So whatever we said about grace up to this point, we should be able to apply to the embodiment of grace to Jesus himself. So do we see grace as a gift in Jesus? Well, literally, there is the gift of himself. The very coming of Jesus, Christmas that we just celebrated last week. It's a yearly reminder of the grace of God in giving us Jesus. As sinners, we neither knew or cared, nor cared for a Savior to be given. We were consumed in sin and self, obedient to carnal desires of our darkened hearts. Without God in this world, we did not, we did not pursue God. But God pursued us. God pursued sinners, and God did so through sending his son as a gift. We also see grace as a gift in Jesus' death. Had we longed for salvation or redemption or reconciliation, we would quickly have been thwarted because we have no means to secure salvation. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't have, we couldn't have saved ourselves. No righteous work, no sinless life, no ransom fund. Our debt is too great to be canceled by our own efforts. But God, in grace, sent Jesus, and Jesus, in grace, dies to secure our salvation. The purpose of Jesus was the gift of grace for salvation. Do we see grace as an instructor in Jesus? Well, we see this over and over again in the Gospels as Jesus deals with the lame, the deaf, the leper, the mute, most often with sinners, his words literally ministered grace to those who heard. Luke 4, 22. And all spoke well of him, that's of Jesus, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But just as we saw in Titus 2, grace is not simply positive affirmations. To make the hearers feel better about their sinful selves, grace calls out sin and the need for repentance. So, Jesus can do things like pronounce five woes on the Pharisees in Matthew 23, not out of, not out of spite or vengeance, but out of grace, if they would only hear, if they would only hear his warnings and turn from their ways, if they would only repent. He can overturn the tables in the temple and drive out the money changers, if only they would realize their sin and turn from their ways. One of the greatest examples of grace as instruction comes from Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. At the very end of that sermon, Matthew 7, 28 and 29 records this. When Jesus, Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Were they astounded because he said so many nice things to them? He tickled their ears. He made them feel better about themselves. Now, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like, you have been told, and gives a, a, a piece of the law. And then he says, but I say to you. And he amplifies the law. He goes above and beyond the law. Why? He does, 
he gives them something infinitely more difficult to follow than the law. Because he's revealing the root of sin, the heart of sin within each person. He's calling them to renounce ungodliness and worldly lust. And then he's revealing that he alone is the answer. He can graciously call his followers to obedience. Like John 14, 15, where he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because he knows what they truly need is not a better self-esteem, but a right relationship with God. Do we see grace as a ministry in Jesus? Do we see grace as a ministry in Jesus? Well, you should be able to say yes if you remember our study through the book of Mark. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, as the embodiment of grace, his whole life is a ministry. It's service to others. The healings and the exorcisms, the teaching and the discipling, the crucifixion and the resurrection are all service for others. We often think of Jesus coming to earth to serve. So sometimes we imagine that it wasn't that big a deal. Like serving sinners was such a privilege that Jesus actually kind of was lucky to get to do it. And in some way or other, Jesus saw the great immediate benefits of it to himself in all this service, and he probably had a lot of fun serving the undeserving and the wicked and his eventual crucifiers. And besides, in the end, Jesus worshiped all over the earth, feeding 4,000, 5,000, healing lepers, making the lame walk and blind see. These things should have, should have set him up to be feted, to be exalted, to be praised everywhere. Instead, this is the description we have of Jesus. He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. His family asked him to stop. His disciples doubted him. The religious leaders hated him. The people used him, and the crowds crucified him. And still, Jesus served. Not for the immediate benefit, but for the Father's good pleasure. So, just thought, maybe when Jesus did not feel appreciated, but still served, as strange as it sounds, maybe when we serve, and don't feel appreciated. Maybe we have a taste of what Jesus felt like. Jesus serves even to this very moment. He serves by saving. He serves by sanctifying. So even at this very moment, Christ is still serving us. Grace is a gift for salvation. Grace is an instructor for sanctification. Grace is a ministry for service. And grace is a person, the Son, the Savior. So when you head into 2023, beginning this very moment, this very day, I hope you hold on to grace 
this year. More importantly, that you'll hold on to Jesus Christ. Let's pray.